Welcome. It's good to have you here today. It's good to have you here online as well. And we have started a new series called An Ugly Christmas. And you might go like, what? Well, yeah. Can you tell I've got an ugly sweater on? Well, we tried to uglify it. Emma, my daughter, worked well. Notice I'm going to jingle all the way through this service. Isn't that going to be a thrill? And uh, we've got polar bears with face masks just for 2020. And then the Christmas trees are up in flames like most of the West of the United States was this year. Perfect. And Mary is spelled wrong. So there you go. It's an ugly Christmas. It's the time of the year that we expect fairy tales of um, plum fairies, sugar plum fairies, wrapped presents, bright lighted trees, pine scented candles. St. Nicholas and children that are just joyful all the time. But this Christmas seems a little more foreboding with COVID-19 deaths on the rise, high unemployment, political turmoil, and then our isolation and anxiety all to boot. But I dare say the first Christmas, the original Christmas, is much more like this year than any other year that I've experienced in my life. It wasn't wonderful, it wasn't beautiful, it wasn't glorious, it was actually an ugly time of the year, an ugly time for the world. And that the, all the prophecies that you see in the Old Testament, from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Micah, were not spoken during a time of joy and wonder, but a time of darkness and difficulty with just terrible leaders on the throne at that moment in time. And the people were questioning their own existential survival as a nation, let alone anything else going on. So the Christmas season this year like it or not, you might be able to, we might really experience it more like the original when we strip off all the glitter, all the glamour, all the tinsel, and we get down to seeing the real world that God showed his love to, all of its ugliness, the real issues that we all face, and how it's that world that the Messiah Jesus comes for. So today we're starting the series off in Hosea chapter 11, and our series today is going to be looking at an ugly history. So you can read along with me through the Bible app, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So tell me, when you want to tell the story of your life, where do you start? Do you start with your birth? 
Or do you start with where your parents met, you know, kind of the uh, show, How I Met Your Mother? Or do you go uh, farther back than that, and you start with your ancestors maybe coming to this country? Maybe that's where you start. Well, you know, Ancestry.com, for example, would love for you to believe that when you discover, like, generation after generation after generation of your family, um, as far back as you can go, then you're going to learn something about yourself. Or spend a little more money, get your DNA tested to find out where you, quote, come from, and that defines who you are. But I have a feeling that Ancestry.com is a bit wrong. They don't go far enough back. And your genetic makeup does not define who you are. According to the Bible, and according to our story today, the radical nature of it asserts that your identity is found in your relationship with God and your relationship with all of humanity. And we have to go all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then, as other examples along the way, people like Abraham. And then Jacob, who is later called Israel, as Hosea does in our text. And what we're going to find, it's not a pretty history at all. It's kind of an ugly history. An ugly history for Israel, which is emblematic for everyone. And yet God chooses Israel. God chooses you. God chooses me. And he continues to have a history with us at great cost to himself. And how he has a change of heart in this text that we'll look at. Hosea chapter 11 is rather amazing. Walter Brigham, an Old Testament scholar, says this, Hosea 11 is among the most remarkable oracles in the entire prophetic literature. And another scholar named H.D. Beebe says, In Hosea 11, we penetrate deeper into the heart and mind of God than anywhere else in the Old Testament. So we're going to find out what that all means in this text today. And our three points that we're looking at in the sermon today are an ugly history for Israel... God's change of heart and a new chapter in the story. First of all, the ugly history. Now, it's not all ugly. You know, what's amazing about this is Hosea 11 one starts out, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, so God showed mercy compassion to the descendants of Jacob, who for 450 years had been in bondage in, Israel, uh, in Egypt, Israel itself. He calls his own child. Now, why did he call them? I mean, why would he call them out of Egypt? It wasn't because they were so great and wonderful and pious or they're better than other people, but simply because God showed his love and compassion on them. That's the only answer we can find in the scriptures. Honestly, if God wanted to call people who were sophisticated or noble or wonderful, or pious, or highly spiritual, or sincere, he would have called the Egyptians and left Israel behind. Because there were no qualities in them. We can find no qualities in the Old Testament story of Israel that say, oh yeah, that's why God called them, because they were so good. No, not at all. Out of Egypt, he calls, he says, my son, as a child, as a helpless child, unable to help himself, and probably not even knowing who he was as a child. That's how it goes. And then, is Israel grateful for being called out of Egypt? Is he grateful for being adopted? No, not even close. Hosea 11.2 says it this way, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You know, God called, but unlike E.F. Hutton, they didn't listen. In fact, 
Instead, they called on other gods. It says they started worshiping idols. And I've said this before, that um, the rule of thumb in the Old Testament is this, that 90% of the time, 90% of Israel was worshiping idols. That's the story. That's the story. Now, what amazes me about the biblical stories that we do have is they, that they got through, you know? I mean, so here is Israel writing about Israel's own history and the prophets speaking God's word, etc., and they let it stand the way it is, and it's not pretty. It's an ugly history. They don't, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat or romanticize or even filter out or gloss over all of the foibles and problems and actually ugliness of Israel itself. In fact, I think when people start reading the Bible for the first time, if they read it, they kind of almost have to stop because they're kind of shocked at some of the stories that they would read about. Stories of things like genocide and infanticide and stories that would make New Orleans look wonderfully nice on Mardi Gras. And if you've ever been to New Orleans on Mardi Gras, you kind of know what I mean. And the stories in the Old Testament are even worse than that. And now you're probably thinking, ooh, John, where are those stories? I'd like to read them, okay? Yeah, well, one of them is called the Golden Calf. And whether you realize it or not, they, uh, what was going on there was a lot more than what you uh, think or even see in Cecil B. DeMille's movie, okay? Um, boy, it, uh, the gr Hebrew language is quite graphic at what was happening in front of the Golden Calf. And other stories are like, oh, the story in Genesis of Judah and Tamar. And later on in the book of Judges, the end of the book of Judges just kind of falls apart. The stories are just so graphic and so disgusting, and you just go like, why are they even in the Bible? And what's fascinating is the stories that are recorded are just kind of telling the facts about human nature, and, and they're not like Aesop's fable with a moral at the end of the story. They don't even leave you with that. They want you to meditate on them and, and kind of question them and be outraged by them and shocked by them and trying to decide what's going on and you have to interact with them to start understanding what's going on in the story. And you might say, why do they are even in the Bible at all? I'll tell you, they're not Sunday school lessons. We don't teach them to our children, these stories. Much of the Old Testament, we kind of gloss over in those. And uh, the story of Hosea himself is one I don't remember ever hearing in Sunday school. Did you? No, because, um, by the way, so God calls this prophet Hosea, and he says, you're going to marry a woman named Gomer. But Gomer, yeah, I know the name's not, is kind of, right? How many Gomers do you know? Well, there's reasons you don't know a Gomer, because it's just like you don't know many Jezebels either, do you? No, because Gomer turns out to be a cult prostitute for the Baals. She actually is totally unfaithful to him. And God knows it's going to be that way ahead of time. And he still tells Hosea to marry her. And then she is unfaithful. They have a couple of children, a difficult uh, life together, etc. And then finally, when all is said and done, God says, Hosea, Hosea, the... Um, the, um, the life you've had with Gomer is similar to the, the relationship I have with Israel. He's, you've been unfaithful and I'm still trying to be faithful to you. So, 
Why are they included in the Bible? Why is this stuff here? Because I think we try to gloss over our own human history too often. We tend to rewrite it. We kind of leave out all the messy parts. We aren't really honest with ourselves. Kathleen Schultz writes in her book how difficult it is for us to really deal with the ugliness of our lives. It's a book she is entitled Being Wrong, and this is what she says. A whole lot of us go through life assuming that we are basically right, basically all the time, about basically everything, about our political and intellectual convictions, our religious and moral beliefs, our assessment of other people, our memories, our grasp of facts. As absurd as it sounds, when we stop to think about it, our steady state seems to be one of unconsciously assuming that we are very close to omniscient, and I would say perfect as well, right? Isn't that amazing how everybody thinks they've been right about everything that's gone on in 2020, and how wrong we've probably all been? Yes. So, what do we learn in this passage? What's going on here? You know, I think we all have an ugly history. Israel had one. And you just can't write it off. And you can't write it off the fact that Israel had an ugly history. Oh, they were a lot worse than we are. That's not the case. No, they're emblematic of every one of us. You know, lately in the United States, I think there's been a huge debate about how we understand our history and our past, and we're struggling with it because we kind of want to all gloss over some of the messiest parts of our history, from slavery to exploitation of workers that have happened at times to the xenophobia that has happened at other times. And we want to kind of treat our founding fathers as if they were much more pious than they actually were, much more religious than they were, and much more enlightened than they actually were. Because we don't want to think that where we are today is a result of an ugly history. We want to think that we are the noblest nation on earth. But you know what? What I find out is every nation does this. You know? And every nation has an ugly history. We've treated native peoples around the world poorly. We've treated those who are weak poorly. There isn't a nation on earth that can say, yes, we got it all right. Not one. You know, Paul sums this all up. The Bible is pretty specific about this stuff and has a general blanket statement about what world history really is like. He sums it up in a very simple sentence. What is world history? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's history in a nutshell. You know, the top it off, though, is not that there's just, quote, an ugly history. It's the cover-up that's really the problem often in our lives. We kind of want to say, yeah, I know that's the truth. I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God, but at least I'm better than. <laughs> or I'm not as bad as, right? Brant Hansen writes in one of his books, we, all, we will twist logic, bend reason, conveniently forget facts, invent new stories, even destroy relationships, all in the name of preserving our precious illusion that we're right or we're better than. We'll sacrifice anything. It really is that important to us. This is how addictions work. And when it comes to our own need to be right, well, we're all addicts who need to be set free. So the problem isn't as much that we just have an ugly history. The problem is that we don't want to recognize it, and we don't want to deal with it, and we act like we can just ignore it or have it go away, or we're not as bad as. And the truth of Israel is that 
well, you know, they could say and try to say, well, we're not quite as bad as, you know, Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. The truth is, the way that Hosea says it in this text is quite shocking because in Hosea 11.8, Hosea writes how God is responding to them. And he compares, he says, how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I tr make you like Adma and like Zeboim? And I don't know if you realize this, but Adma and Zeboim are the two other towns alongside Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed in the book of Genesis. So he's just saying, you know what, Israel, you're like Sodom. We're all the same as Gomorrah. That's an ugly history. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's amazing, though, is Romans 3.23 that I just, is that sentence isn't a sentence. It's a sentence fragment. It has a comma at the end. It's not done with a period. And Romans 3.23 to 24 says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're getting to our second point. No, we all have an ugly history. We have a God who changes his heart when he looks at us and he comes to us with grace and compassion. God's change of heart. What's so profound in Hosea chapter 11 Almost more than anywhere else in the Bible, that's why Walter Brueggemann and Beattie said this, is that God, you could see kind of the interior struggle that God has, his suffering, his grieving over, like a parent, many of you can possibly relate to this, over a wayward, rebellious teenager, and you're just going like, what am I going to do with you? How can I give you up? I can't. So God is wrathfully angry at Israel for how they have scorned him and thrown him away. And yet at the same time, he will not allow his wrath to take over and destroy them completely. So we see here in Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God remains faithful to his promises. God says he's going to be a God of compassion. He's not like human beings who are fickle or flaky or who just give in to their impulses and just destroy things just because they're angry. God does have wrath against sin and sinners. But God himself in this passage says he's choosing to limit his wrath so that his compassion is ever greater. And he has a purpose for Israel. And even when he does vent his wrath on them and send them off into exile, he does so to discipline them, not to destroy them, to be able to be gracious to them in the end. And why does Israel get this grace? What do they do? Absolutely nothing. You want an explanation of what God changes his heart towards human beings toward Israel to any of us. And the closest thing you're going to get in this passage is that 
God says, I am God and I am not a man. There's no explanation of why does God love us so much. It's just the reality of who our God is. And though God knows our history, and he knows that past history is the best predictor of future behavior, he still has compassion on Israel and on this world. And this is not to say that God is a soft uh, a soft or a pushover, he looks at human beings and kind of goes like, aw, shucks, you shouldn't have done that, and winks at them. No, no, not at all. God's wrath is still there, and it has to be dealt with. But God decides to turn that wrath in this passage against himself. He suffers, he struggles more than Israel does. And you kind of start beginning to have a sense of what's going to have to happen later. There's a hint at the next chapter in God's story. Don't you feel that that Hosea is foretelling of something that's got to, something's got to give and something's got to happen and something's got to bring this, this contradiction together between God's wrath and God's compassion and we find out that is exactly what happens. There's a new chapter in the story and we find this in the Gospel of Matthew. It's fascinating. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, that Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea in chapter 11 that we just read. And it happens after Jesus is born and then Herod wants, the king wants to kill Jesus already as an infant and Joseph and Mary flee and become political refugees in Egypt. And then Matthew writes, so this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. You're like me, and you've kind of studied this passage a few times. You go like, what in the world? How does Matthew use that at this case of Hosea 11 as kind of a messianic prophecy? It, that chapter 11 that we read has nothing to do with the Messiah. It doesn't talk about the Messiah. What's going on here? How does it fit with Jesus? And the point is that Jesus is going to be the son that Israel never was. That Jesus is the son that God calls out of Egypt and that Jesus recapitulates, isn't that a big word? Recapitulates, lives after, and the entire history of Israel to live it out and complete it perfectly in Israel's place. He is the son whom the father has loved and whom he is well pleased. He is the son who lives perfectly in love for God, the father, and in love for his fellow human beings. He is the one who is going to be the light to the nations. He is the only one. He fulfills what we were unable to do. And by this new chapter, God rewrites our entire history and our future. Now, this is fascinating, too. I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels of Luke and Matthew specifically. Have genealogies of Jesus, kind of like Ancestry.com. In Luke, it goes all the way back to Adam. In Matthew, it goes back to Abraham. But what you find out in these ancestries of Jesus is there's some ugly characters involved all the way through it. It's rather an amazing list of people that Matthew and Luke could have kind of glossed over because they didn't pick out every generation, but instead they list them all and you find out 
in that history that there were uh, perpetrators of sexual assault and the victims of such, murderers and polygamists and idolaters and egomaniacs all the way through. It's an ugly history. Just these, Adam and Abraham and Judah and Tamar and David and Solomon and Bathsheba, to name a few characters, that didn't have a perfect history at all. And what that means is that Jesus came for exactly that kind of history. For this, the real world. He didn't have a beautiful life himself. He faces the ugly truth of power and privilege that this world had, and it was used against him in a variety of ways, even already as an infant. There's a plot to kill him. And Jesus is the one who leads his disciples with cords of human love and kindness, like the Father did to Israel. And Jesus is the one who takes up children into his arms and blesses them. He is the one who heals people who then ignore him and who face death and decay. And we are all ugly to Jesus. And though he spoke about the truth of humanity, like the prophets, we end up calling him demonic and a blasphemer and a fraud. That's why Brant Hansen writes it this way. He says, while Jesus tells us that no one is good but God, he then does something that we struggle to understand. He demonstrates vividly on the cross that our value doesn't depend on our goodness at all. Is that amazing? That's the truth about us. We have an ugly history. Jesus knows it. He still loves you. He forgives you. He dies for you. Your value is not based on how good you are. You don't have to cover up all that stuff. There upon the cross is where we see the contradiction come to a conclusion between God's wrath against sin and God's compassion and love for sinners. God turns his wrath against himself and his own son. God makes a change to our history that not only affects our story at the moment, but affects our entire destiny and our future and how this whole story that started with Adam and Eve and creation, how it will come to fulfillment one day. And we're now part of that beauty of God's story. You know, so this season of Advent, as we start to prepare ourselves for the coming of Christmas, I think it's okay that it's been a bit ugly right now. I'm not happy with it. I don't like, you know, having to wear a face mask everywhere or deal with the anxieties or see people facing unemployment and struggles. We're trying to deal with all those things, but, you know, it's exactly for a world that we are living in right now that God has um, sent his son for. This is the world he loved. This one, not a different one. So let Christmas be a bit ugly this year. I think we'll all be a lot happier if we let go of those false expectations of what, how beautiful and wonderful and glorious it's going to be this year. Let it be a little different this year. Maybe this time we're going to learn the reality of what Christmas is a bit more. Maybe it's time to let your own personal story and all your ugly thoughts and hideous words and grotesque motives and unseemly actions that you've done over your lifetime, let them be what they are. And place them where they belong, where God intends them to be, in the cross of Jesus Christ. So we can celebrate the beauty of an ugly manger and an ugly cross this 
season. Now, you might be asking at this point in the sermon, John, you know, I usually come away with some pointers of how to live and what to do. You know, what, tell, me, tell me what... You know, the best point that can ever happen in a sermon is not you come away with five different ways to improve your life this week or what you need to do. No. The best thing that can happen in a sermon or a message is to have the response of, wow, what a beautiful Savior we have. That's the best point of all. And hopefully that's what we can come away with today and just worship and praise the God who is. The one who knows our ugly history takes it on himself to give us a beautiful future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, almost every news article, almost every broadcast around the world, Lord, shows the ugly side of our human nature. You know, O oh Lord, how desperately we are de trying to deny it and try to keep on <laughs> make, trying to beautify our own lives by our own methods, Lord, to cover up. And we, you know how much we fail at that, Lord God. This Christmas, Lord, we thank you that you came for the world as it is, not as, as it should be. We thank you, Lord, that you came for us as we are, and you love us as we are, not as we just should be. You don't wait for us to come to our senses. You didn't wait for Israel to figure things out. You are not a human in that way, Lord, fickle, but you are God who has such amazing compassion and grace in our lives. Lord, help us in this season to see your beauty in the midst of the ugliness of this world. And so we pray for your beauty, your healing, your power to be evident in our lives in many ways. Right now we lift up some situations that we know of, but there are many um, of, for people who are online and people who are here that, are, that they can silently lift to you right now, Lord. You know the ugliness of our thoughts and actions just over the past week, Lord, how tense things have been, how frustrated we are, how much we have desired things that you know are just not good. We place those into your hand. We ask for your forgiveness for all of those things. We lift up to you, O Lord, people who are facing some very difficult times right now. We place Andy and Jeff Blankenship in your care as she goes through a clinical trial. We place Chris uh, in your care, Lord, uh, the grandson of the Griskies. We place Kai into your care, both of them facing cancer as well, Lord God. We lift up to you all the concerns and needs that we have. We lift up to you, oh Lord, our nation right now. We're in a very difficult time in this pandemic, Lord. Some people just are refusing uh, to comply with some basic things, Lord God. We pray, Lord, you'd soften our hearts to each other, that we wouldn't treat others as our enemies, or, well, at least if we do have enemies, Lord, we treat them the way you want us to, to love our enemies and pray for those who would even persecute us. Lord, give us your beauty, the beauty of your scars, the beauty of your suffering and sacrifice, that we can see the beauty in the cross that we might bear. Lord, we pray that this year 
you would renew us in this season, that this would be a Christmas that would be so deep and so amazing and so paradoxical that we would be able to celebrate your goodness and grace even more than ever, Lord. And we pray, Lord, for Christians around the world who are facing some ugly times, for those who are being persecuted for their faith, that you would protect them, but that you would also give them courage and strengthen them and that you would be glorified in them as well. And Lord, as we prepare in just a moment to receive um, and to celebrate um, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper that you, that you initiated the night before your crucifixion, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive the gift for all it is. So bless our time together in a few moments and bless the rest of the, our day with your presence that we know your compassion, your faithful love, your covenant promises that you've made to us that we are your children and you are our God. All this we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.